Welcome to Computer Game Evolution, a podcast about the evolution of computer games. Episode 3.13 Between Roots and Towers. Before we wander into the thick jungle of action adventure, there are a couple of things I need to point out as our landmarks for this trip. The first of those is that I can go deep into action adventure without doing a big survey of the 80s adventure games first. Because ever since Warren Robinette combined the original adventure with a maze action game, no one making action-adventure stuff has cared about the state of pure adventure titles. Nobody was checking up on the latest from Infocom and Sierra Online. Action-adventure is the one offshoot of adventure games that owes nothing to Roberta's Mystery House. If anything, it's King's Quest that was borrowing here when it put a mobile player's character on the screen. So we can safely explore here without having to go into that dark forest over there. The second thing is that I'm going to exclude or gloss over certain action-adventure titles for now, so that I can get back to them in a few other episodes. We're not going to touch massive 3D open-world games, so no mercenary and no work by the late legend Mike Singleton. I'm also going to steer clear of stealth action, which belongs to a separate thematic episode, as to do horror action-adventure games. There will be time for it later. So, stick to the path, and if you hear rustling in the bushes, that's the wind. Or is it? Our first stop is the one that came first, the 1979 Superman for the Atari VCS by John Donne. This is the game the management wanted Warren Robinette to make, but he kept stalling so well that Dunn volunteered, and he got to use an early version of Robinette's adventure engine, so it's totally relevant to us. While Superman is a remarkable console game for the time, with two dozen screens making up its world, plus a subway system for quick transportation, and Superman's cape fluttered in flight, the experience is hard to recommend. The problem is, you control THE Superman. He cannot die, he cannot fail. There's literally no failure state in the game. You do get scored based on how fast you beat it, but that means that every single obstacle exists only to waste more of the player's time. The game opened with a semi-interactive in-engine cutscene, very modern in concept. Superman flew down to a phone booth and turned into Clark Kent, as he always does. Then you were forced to walk Clark one screen to the right when you saw a bridge, and if you tried to cross it, the wily villain Lex Luthor and his gang of armed goons blew the bridge up into three bits. You had to turn back, turn back into Superman, and sort out this mess. The game end trigger was kind of ingenious. You had to walk Clark into the offices of the Daily Planet newspaper. But the bridge prevented you from doing it at the start, and afterwards Superman wouldn't transform back until you solved all the problems. You solved the problems by finding and bringing the three bits of the bridge to their original place, and finding and bringing the villains to justice, which meant grabbing them as they try to shoot you in vain, and dunking them into the city jail in one of the screens. At the start of every game, everything and everyone were in the same locations, but the goons moved around on foot, while Lex Luthor and his flying drone would helicopter around the city grabbing the bridge bits and dropping them somewhere else, so the longer you played, the more random the city became. Another issue was the hovering ball of kryptonite bouncing all over the place. If it touched Superman, you lost the ability to fly, and needed to go looking for Lois Lane, strolling around the map so that she kissed Superman and fixed him. 
Like a bridge piece, Lois could also be carried around the map by Luther and his helicopter, so you could lose a lot of time searching for her, unless you played the easier game mode where Lois and the Kryptonite were always in the same room. Superman doesn't sound too bad on paper. An open game where you rebuild some city infrastructure while searching it top to bottom for terrorists. But it had to run on the Atari VCS. If there are more than two characters on the screen, everything flickers. Many screens look similar, differing only in the background color. And they're connected in strange ways, too. The whole city forms a loop if you're moving horizontally, say walking. For flying, there are vertical connections between the screens, too, and they follow their own logic. And here you see a few one-way-only connections so that you can't approach the bridge or the phone booth vertically. Plus, there are five subway stations connected to one another, and even if you don't take the subway, the city screen where you enter the station is never one of the three city screens you can exit it to. Superman requires multi-dimensional mapping techniques. You do have the X-ray vision letting you peek at adjacent screens wherever you are, but that doesn't help navigation. It might have been better and easier if city screens had been color-coded, but the opposite is in effect. Adjacent screens have different palettes. But here I can forgive Dunn Superman a lot, and not just because of the hardware. In 1979, the visual language for creating large, coherent, easy-to-navigate worlds did not exist in the game industry. There hadn't been a need for it. It lived somewhere in real-life architecture and urban planning, not in games designed and tested by programmers. And this chronologically first action-adventure does have a few neat features. An interactive opening cutscene, character transformation, two primary objectives, a helping non-player character, and an attempt at a fast travel system through public transport, which regular adventure likes at the time handled with magic. In 1980, Superman was followed by Robinette's Adventure, the other first action-adventure title. It had a worse-looking main character sprite, a humble square without a cape, there was no opening cutscene, but it used the same engine, so there were items and a spoiler character who moved those items randomly. A bat. The game world was large and full of walls, but it was also much easier to navigate, since the map mostly made sense, and Warren color-coded different areas. Your end goal in adventure was always the same. Get the Holy Grail to the Golden Castle. If you played the simpler variant, the Grail awaited in the Black Castle, but its gate was locked, and you needed to find the Black Key guarded by a dragon that looked like rubber chicken. You had no weapon at the start, just grab the key and run. And don't get caught by another dragon patrolling the main road of the game. But you could take a detour by opening the Golden Castle with its key first, grabbing the sword inside and killing the two dragons, just in case. With the Black Key, you could go to the Black Castle, first passing through the Blue Maze, and in this game mode it had a bridge over one of its walls, which acted as a shortcut. Then you got into the castle, got the Grail, brought it home, and won. Then you were ready for the real adventure. The Grail was still behind the gates of the Black Castle, but inside an unlit maze and guarded by a dragon. At least in this mode you started in the same room as the sword, only there was also a bat in the room, which, following its instincts, immediately grabbed the sword and carried it away, as a cutscene of sorts. Anyway, the black key was now in the maze behind the locked white castle, and the white key was in the familiar blue maze, but to get through the white castle maze you also needed the bridge, which was no longer in the blue maze. No, it was in the dark and confusing catacombs, where you also had to find the gold key. It sounds like a straightforward chain of actions, but don't forget about the bat. 
The bed flying all over the place, grabbing one item, then swapping it for a different one, moving stuff around and being a nuisance. The bat made sure no two games were quite the same. And sometimes you'd see it carrying what you needed right now. You might get lucky and grab the bat, and say shove both the bat and the key it was carrying into a gate to open it. But the standard procedure was more along the lines of offering a different item to the bat in a trade. And sometimes you'd be walking on your merry way somewhere and see the bat carry across the screen the body of the dragon you just killed. What a sight. Or it carries a live dragon into the room and flies off with your sword. Fighting the three dragons, each with its own personality quirks, was a big deal. Adventure even offered two settings controlling their behavior, how fast they bit you and whether they ran away if you had the sword. And you are no Superman, you can get swallowed, trapped in the belly of a dragon. But that could be fixed by hitting the game reset button, which returned you to the gates of the Golden Castle and revived all the dragons. Now, if you felt comfortable with this advanced adventure mode, Warren Robinette had a special challenge for you. The randomized adventure. All the items, the bat and the dragons started in random locations. Really random. You could begin all but holding the Holy Grail, and then spend ages trying to get the golden key which you'd find embedded in a wall, so the only way to extract it would be either the bat or the magnet item that attracted other stuff. Or the random adventure could be quite literally unbeatable. So even though it shared most of the engine with Superman, Robinette's adventure had its own special features. A world divided into visually distinct zones, dark areas where you could not see the whole screen but only the area around the player, progression blocked both by specific keys and a special tool, the bridge, and player's character defeat being possible but only acting as a brief delay. Oh, and the world randomizer is not an official feature of many action-adventure games that have come since, but you can often find fan-made hacks that swap the locations of items and enemies around, and the best ones come with lots of options for how chaotic you want it to be, and checks preventing unwinnable layouts. What is not going to be a frequent sight later down the line is the flapping bat, a force of nature, the great randomizer in the sky. Even when you can't see it, you know it's off-screen somewhere, ruining things. Then it steals the Holy Grail as you're about to cross the finish line. It's an equivalent of thief characters in Adventure Likes, a product of its time. Not many developers since have dared to include something like the Bat in their designs. Of course, Adventure also featured the first hidden developer credit in a video game concealed so poorly that players were able to find it, and it got dubbed the first Easter egg in a bit of damage control from Atari, and its marketing also said that the company would run an easter egg hunt in later games. 1981 was not the year it happened. It's in fact a pretty dry year when it comes to action-adventure games, and what did come out was extremely sneaky. I suppose everyone was busy watching Raiders of the Lost Ark and taking notes. The first Indiana Jones film was not a new concept, it's a throwback to older adventure series, but now its scenes and characters were inspiring people with programming skills. And so, in 1982, it begins for real. Atari had two games for us this year. Howard Warshow's Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the first of the Easter Egg Hunt Sword Quest series, Earthworld. Both had an inventory of items, and both represented it with a bar of icons at the bottom of the screen. Let's first explore the one I haven't covered much. According to Todd Fry, the guy Atari reportedly paid a million for his poorly received Pac-Man port, Sword Quest was all his idea. 
He wasn't just an assigned showrunner, the whole thing started when he and only he realized that Warner owned not only Atari, but also DC Comics and Franklin Mint, a company that produced collectibles. And it all could be combined to release a game plus comic book puzzle full of secrets with a real prize awaiting those who solved it. In his 2018 Arcade Attack podcast interview, Todd really wants you to know it was all his idea, which sounds odd. But then I remembered that this was happening in the years of the profit-sharing agreement at Atari, when mentioning anyone else's input meant you had to share the money. So I suppose the old habits of firmly sticking to his story die hard. By the way, Todd Fry does not regret his widely panned Atari 2600 port of Pac-Man. He did what he was able to to replicate the game on the hardware, and there are only a few minor things he would have changed. But then again, he didn't care that much since it was just another job assignment. Also, Atari's arcade analysis room had both Pac-Man and Defender cabinets for research, and given the choice, Todd says he would pick Defender 999 times out of a thousand. He really didn't care about his Pac-Man port. Now, Sword Quest was his project. Which must be why the first game in the series was entirely made for Todd by Atari programmer Dan Hitchens. But Todd set the direction. He wanted to bring in the zodiac signs as a theme, and later games would refer to the Tree of Life, the Chakras, and I Ching, and he says those concepts were not well known on the West Coast at the time. Did he seriously miss all of New Age spiritualism? Anyway, the game was developed by Dan Hitchens alone, based on the most loose spiritual outlines by Fry, so Todd can't tell much about his design process, and Dan hasn't been in the spotlight much, so let's just get to the game. Yes, Earthworld can be generously described as a game. It's sort of a combination lock padded with action scenes. The action inserts are basic clones of a few popular arcade titles, so not particularly worth talking about. The adventure part builds on Robinette's base, in a way. There are 12 rooms named after the zodiac signs, and you can move your stick figure between them. Some rooms can't be reached in the beginning, but as you solve puzzles and find items that act as keys and beat action scenes, you reach all the rooms and can get to solving the big puzzles that would earn you the chance of winning the big prize. The puzzles are all like this. You press the button on the controller to see the items in the current room as icons. You take them into your inventory, maybe leave some items, and then leave the room. If you left behind the correct set of items in the correct rooms, the screen would flash two numbers at you, the page and the panel in the supplied comic book from DC Comics. You'd examine the panel for clues for which items to place in which rooms next. The first pointer was free, you got it by simply walking around. But for every next one, you had to solve a puzzle with increasingly vague hints. A few of the 16 items served a gameplay purpose, like trivializing certain action scenes or letting you skip them, but most existed only to be a part of those solutions. And the same item could be needed in different places in different puzzles. And you could only carry six items with you at a time. And you didn't know how many items were required for each specific combination. The first puzzle was solved with one. The tenth, which let you see the ending, took 15 items. In a way, Dan Hitchens succeeded at creating a puzzle that would be impossible to brute force by picking through all the combinations. It would have taken a lifetime. In another way, Dan Hitchens failed at creating anything resembling variety or engaging gameplay. You'd buy the game for the chance to win the big prize from Atari, not for its simple action and riddles. 
Now, Todd Fry says, Earthworld was one of the first to merge adventure and Twitch gameplay. And technically it is, but in this case the combination was about as organic as nailing a porcelain vase to an oil tanker. Then there were the Earthworld Finals, when a small group of winners were flown at Atari's expense to the company offices to compete for the bejeweled thingamajig from Franklin Mint. Here we get some fun details from John Michael Battaglia, who was writing promotional materials for the SwordQuest series and the contests, and who was interviewed for digitpress.com. Just days before the supposedly planned big event, Dan Hitchens made the special contest version of Earthworld. The exact same game, but with different puzzle answers. There was no time for a comic book with hints, or even for much puzzle solving, because the final round was supposed to determine the winner in only 90 minutes. The plan was to give the players copies of the game's answer sheet from Hitchens. The sheet simply said, put this thing into that room. Seeing it, John Michael Battaglia was not amused. He'd just spent time and effort writing up the future contest in the third game, Waterworld, as a true battle of wits, and the first real final was just a race in who could key in the answer faster. It was crap! So, on his own initiative, Battaglia used his knowledge and consulted a girl he was dating who happened to be a professional astrologer to turn the answers into riddles requiring at least a bit of brain power to pick out the Zodiac and pop culture references. John Michael did this even though he didn't believe anyone had solved the original game legitimately, instead getting the answers either from a company leak or from a reverse-engineered card. He's also got this assessment of the design. To me, Earthworld was a game designed to please only masochists. End quote. I can see why he says that. Many adventure games operate like puzzle boxes where you find a secret button on one side which unlocks a switch on another, and that unlocks a slider on another, and you progress fiddling step by step. But the SwordQuest series puzzle box equivalent is the one from the movie Hellraiser. And I'm talking about the series as a whole because as of Earthworld, the game design of the SwordQuest line is done. The Fireworld and Waterworld that followed had other room themes and action inserts and puzzle solutions, but the way it played remained the same. So let's leave them and go to the other Atari action-adventure title of 1982, Raiders of the Lost Ark. A game made to be enjoyed on its own merits, rather than in hope of a compensation. At least, that's the theory. Warshow's Raiders, at a glance, seems closer to the spirit of Robinette's adventure, but instead of lugging just one item around, you could carry six, you used two controllers to move and manage the inventory, and the game looked better since Howard had twice as much ROM space to work with. Yet it's not without problems. The controls were awkward, and Warshow still used thief characters. As a safety net, if you lost an item at any point, you technically could get it back where you'd got it originally, unless you realized that restarting the game would be faster. You'd spend some time early on hanging out at the marketplace searching three baskets which got random items at regular intervals. What you definitely wanted was a grenade, a key, and a medallion that would point you to the Ark like in the movie. Remember how in the movie Indy finds the medallion in a basket he's already searched 20 times? Just like that. Then you go to a different place, use the grenade, and run, because if you stay in the same screen when it goes off, you die, and you only have three lives. Returning, you find a huge hole in the wall with a custom sprite just to show it. This is the only place in the game where a grenade can do that. Through the hole you entered the temple where you could get the timepiece. It turns out that Raiders of the Lost Ark had some kind of an internal game clock. There was no visible day and night changes, 
but the timepiece did tell the time, and the medallion had to be used in a specific room at a specific time, actually like in the film. But that wasn't the end of your adventures in the temple. It had other rooms, though the exits were totally invisible, and you'd only be able to get anywhere by rubbing your face against every wall. You'd enter a room with a shining light, a ball that would follow you, and from that you got into a room with some gold lying on the floor, and when you picked it up, one of three items appeared, randomly, or maybe depending on the time. Only one of those items was really handy, the Ankh. Then you'd get out of the temple, maybe through the spider room that had a microchip-looking spider in the middle, who shot out webs to scan the area, and if it hit you, the spider rushed forward and killed Indy, unless you took cover. Have I mentioned that most enemies in Raiders of the Lost Ark were either invincible or kept re-entering the screen when you killed them? Oh, the weapons were nearly useless. With the Ankh in hand, you could go, or just teleport by using it, to the Messes, the largest room in the whole game. It even scrolled. There you used the Ankh as a grappling hook, don't ask, and that turned it into a cursor circling around Indy. You could control the radius with a joystick and press a button to zoom to wherever the cursor was, like the top of another Mesa. If you missed and fell, you could use the Ankh mid-fall to teleport back to the start, a vital feature missing in the other grappling hook item, the Hourglass. Falling straight to the ground meant death. Falling with a parachute meant having to deal with an enemy that stole your hard-earned items, sold them, bought bullets, and shot at you. So don't fall. Instead, grapple your way to the south end of the Messes area, and then the only way to stop using the hook was to drop it, and it disappeared, and when you needed it again, you had to redo the temple adventure. Anyway, next you selected the key item, and walk the screen south, and you had to do it in the center of the screen, because otherwise you'd fall off a narrow path and no, there was no way of knowing it in advance. With this, you got to the map room containing the minimap of the messes, used the medallion at the right time, and saw one of the messes flash. That's where the arc was. All you had to do now was find the black market, buy a shovel there, yes, you had to buy shovels on the black market, then you go to the starting market and buy a parachute there, get another rank in the temple, get to the shiny mesa, jump off, use the parachute to break your fall, and steer past a tree branch into a cave in the vertical cliff face, dodge thieves, and walk over a pile of sand with a shovel to find the Ark and win. Because that's where the movie ended, on Indy finding the Ark. So that's the general course of the game, minus all the frustrating times where you die, get robbed, redo huge chunks, or just waste minutes because a necessary item is not appearing randomly. Compared to Earthworld, Raiders of the Lost Ark is at least a game where things happen. I know it's a low bar, but it's something. And comparing Raiders to Robinette's Adventure, I'm noticing some major differences. Adventure was designed, like its mainframe precursor, to operate on a universal system of rules governing objects and characters with specific properties. It was very free and open like that. I'm not sure if anyone's tried, but it might be possible, though highly unlikely, for the bat to beat the game. Normally it's restricted from entering locked castle areas, but it can carry items and they keep working in its claws, so it can stab a dragon with a sword, maybe it could randomly get the keys to open the gates and get the grail to the end. Raiders of the Lost Ark is nothing like that. There's no bat, there's nothing moving across the whole world aside from the player's character, all areas are separate. The game is full of items doing something different, or anything at all, at one single location. 
The grenade blows up one wall. The medallion and the key do something in one room. The Ankh is either a teleportation device or a grappling hook on the Mesas. The shovel only clears away dirt in caves. The more general use items like the whip and the gun are worthless outside of the two screens with snakes and the shining light room where you can break a specific wall with them. Meanwhile, even the seemingly single-use keys in Adventure could be traded to the bat. Maybe this is the consequence of the increased amount of space Howard Warshow had to work with. Warren Robinette had to optimize, make every rule as broad as possible. Warshow could have it so that a grenade placed at a specific location would summon a unique hole-in-the-wall sprite. Fancy, yes, but it also meant that you couldn't figure out the puzzles in Raiders based on the game's universal principles. Because it didn't have any. But it wasn't a problem for Atari, who ran a tall hint line. Strangely, Raiders of the Lost Ark foreshadows the changes in the graphical adventure games of the 90s, when designers switched to items with so narrowly defined uses that you can have several rags, but only one of them can wipe away some dirt because others are destined for different fates. A disturbing glimpse into a terrifying future. So, was anyone out there even trying to make a proper action-adventure game and not a puzzle set disguised as one in 1982? I think so. His name is Paul Stevenson, and his Aztec for the Apple II was published by Datamost, priced at $39.95. We've already explored Stevenson's other game, Swashbuckler, where you lunged at scurvy pirates and stabbed trained scorpions. Paul definitely recycled some of his material from that one, but Aztec did not keep the players stuck on a ship's deck. It was a platform game, with a side view and no scrolling, and each screen had three floors connected by stairs or trapdoors. The map of each adventure was a grid of 8x8 screens, with a horizontal wraparound, so the dungeon was like a cylindrical pit, maybe. The manual calls it a pyramid. Each time you started a new game, the map was picked randomly out of 32 preset variants, and then the contents of various treasure chests and piles of rubble were randomized, so it would take a minute before you'd see obvious repetition. For the enemies, you had eight levels of difficulty, which governed how many critters and natives would be guarding the place, and which of the ten enemy types would be more numerous. You controlled an Indiana Jones lookalike adventurer, who entered the dungeon coming down from the stairs at the top, with the goal of finding a precious golden idol at the bottom, and returning back to the surface with it, alive. The exact value of the idol depended both on the chosen difficulty setting and the time it took you to retrieve it, like gold was going out of style. The hero started with meager supplies, three points of strength, that is health, and three humble sticks of dynamite. But he could open chests and dig up piles of rubble to find more stuff. There were elixirs that increased your strength by one, there was a machete, your close-range weapon, and you could find more dynamite, a gun, and some bullets. Yes, Aztec may be one of the first, if not the first, of those games about raiding tombs and exploring uncharted areas where you break into an ancient temple and find ammunition lying around. But the game had an excuse. Professor von Förster had gone into the temple first and disappeared. So sometimes opening a chest you find nothing but the prof's remains, or his calling card, sometimes you find his ammo, and sometimes digging through the rubble, you find a bomb. Von Förster didn't want anyone to follow. And if you didn't get to a different floor in time, the bomb would kill you outright, even if you ran to another screen. The local enemies tended to be less lethal. 
Some of them were tiny scorpions and spiders, and you could jump over them or take them out like in Swashbuckler with a downward thrust of the machete. If they hit you, you lost a point of health and got knocked out. Most sources of damage knocked you out for varying amounts of time, and even falling down more than the height of a single step made the adventurer take a lie down with stars above his head. But falling never hurt your health. That would be handled by the medium-sized enemies, like big spiders or snakes. They could bite for two points and had to be either shot or lunged at. Big, human-height enemies included deadly dinosaurs, a plant monster, and Aztec warriors. Those last ones were trouble, especially found with blowguns, since they'd knock you out for a long time, steal your supplies, and then drag you to a nearest pit and toss you into it. So you might find yourself in an unfamiliar area without most of your tools. Serves you right, looter. At least the game tried to warn you about enemies entering the screen with a sound, and each size got its own noise. But you still never knew what to expect exactly, since some enemies were fast, some slow, some roamed randomly, and some homed in on you. And the game could handle plenty of enemy sprites on the screen. The price of it was that most characters were simple white silhouettes. But wait, the temple had traps too. Some were visible trapdoors you fell through if you stepped on them, and there was a thing that acted like a moving trapdoor. Sometimes you'd get locked on the floor you were in, and the ceiling would begin to come down. Sometimes the walls started closing in. The most amusing trap was a giant spigot in a corner that started filling the room with water, and if your head went under, you'd round. Points for making the water not deadly to touch in general. To escape these situations, you need to crouch and set down a stick of dynamite, and its blast would knock you down, but also destroy floors and walls. And stairs. And enemies. But the terrain damage was the greatest concern, since you could destroy all the ways up and trap yourself in a temple forever. Although maybe you'd be able to wiggle out. Aztec was unbelievably fair with its physics. If you saw something, you could stand on it. Even the manual says that you can, under certain conditions, climb anything. And anything was highlighted in bold. It's not just the stairs. You can climb the rubble, the chests, the lids of open chests, and with some creativity, you can hitch a ride on the back of a large enemy. It's still early days of game physics, so the enemy's momentum wouldn't transfer to the hero, and you had to walk to stay in place on the back. And with even more creativity, you could glitch through the bottom floor and walk on the interface below it. When they said anything, they meant it. Naturally, being a 1982 Apple II game made by one guy, Aztec was not without its issues. The jumping relies on awkward preset arcs, and the running jump is more like flying along the ground a short distance. Climbing is a special movement mode that involves constant micro-hops. There are glitches and strange behaviors which may or may not be intentional. No one seems to have tracked down Paul Stevenson, and the founder of Datamost is long dead. And there's another problem, which becomes apparent when you open the two-page manual. Half of its space is dedicated to listing the keys you'd need to... not sure if control... operate your adventurer. There are 16 keys to remember, and a few of them do different things depending on whether you are in the combat stance or not. Still, Aztec was a one-of-a-kind game in its day, and it's still fascinating. It probably did not sell well, seeing as the most famous Datamost title, The Bilestoad, published the same year, shifted only 5,000 copies. Aztec did not vanish completely, as in 84 it got a colorized and glitchy Commodore 64 port, and an Atari 8-bit version where some things, like a few traps and the opening cutscene, were removed. 
but the Atari port was more stable and could be controlled by a single button joystick. An 8-way stick plus a button were just enough to replace the 16 original keys. Not in the most convenient way. Additionally, like Swashbuckler, Aztec was picked up for distribution in Japan by Comptic, and in 84-85 got ports to the PC-88, Fujitsu FM7 and Sharp X1. So maybe someone in Japan saw it and was inspired by it. Also, Aztec is quite officially credited as one of the inspirations for the 2009 indie game Spelunky by Derek Yu. It was a freeware game back then, now there's a commercial edition and a sequel, and it's Aztec but with more stuff and sensible controls. Another 1982 game of tomb robbing was the Tutankham Cabinet by Konami, which brought the theme to the arcades. It was a maze game with an overhead view and a nice and functional minimap, but instead of eating dots or collecting flags, you were looking for treasure. You beat a level when you got to the big prize hidden behind a locked door at the opposite end of the maze. But to open the door, you had to get the key first and maybe collect some smaller treasures for extra points. Tutankham had only four different mazes, each longer than the one before, and on the second go through them, the game got considerably harder, because you had to open two doors at the end of the levels, and you could still carry only one key. So you had to backtrack, maybe using portals that warped you across the maze. And these mazes were not empty. Marked niches regularly spawned snakes, ghosts and other nasties, and all killed you on contact. To fight back, you had a laser gun with a couple of interesting properties. Firstly, the gun could fire only left or right. That's perfectly fine in the horizontal hallways of the maze, but what about the vertical ones? Well, they are death traps where you can't fight back. So your movement through the stages was not simple. You'd alternate between gunning down waves of snakes and dashing through a passage hoping not a single one decides to show up. That's a different rhythm. Of course, Tutankham had a timer ticking down, so you had to follow its rhythm fast. But this brings me to the second quirk of the gun. When the timer ran out, your character didn't die. Your laser stopped working. With infinite enemies, it was a death sentence anywhere but the final stretch before the final door. But technically, it wasn't the timer that killed you. Tutankham's release timing appears a bit unconventional, but I suppose Europe is one of the leading experts in stealing Egyptian treasures, so it got the cabinet first, very early in 82, while Japan and America had to wait until the summer. And people like the game. Tutankham might be what drew the big industry's attention to the collecting keys to open locked doors mechanic. What a great way to make the player move around the level some more plus, say, randomizing the location of the key as opposed to rearranging the whole stage, would be an easier way to prevent players from learning the layouts too well. It was somewhat difficult to avoid exposure to Tutankham in 82-83, since Parker Brothers got a license to release home system ports and did. Only ColecoVision, Intellivision and even the Atari 2600, though not without sacrifices. There were a few ports to the popular early micros too, and there would have been more had the crash not happened. Of course, Tutankham was widely cloned too, all over the world. Many had their own take on looting Egyptian mazes looking for keys. A freshly founded Japanese company TNE Soft released its own ripoff of Tutankham, titled Pyramid, for the NEC PC 6001, and it looked better than the official port to the same system. TNE Soft was named after its founders, brothers Toshiro and Eiji Yokoyama, but they soon changed the meaning to something more businesslike. The company's hiring policy in its early days was, can you start tomorrow? 
That's how sometime after Pyramid, it employed one Tokihiro Naito. Naito had learned how to code without owning a computer. But a nearby electronics store had a running display unit, so Naito would use it every day for a month, keeping his work on a cassette. Ultimately, he got enough money to buy his own by winning a programming contest run by ASCII. Going back to action and adventure, honorable mentions of 1982 go to the already familiar to us Pitfall and Fort Apocalypse, published by Activision and Synapse Software respectively. These were action games, you beat them through twitch reflexes and memorization. There were no useful items to collect and do puzzling with. But both presented the player with a largish world that could be searched and explored relatively freely, as opposed to a linear sequence of challenges. Pitfall was a simple treasure hunt with a time limit, Fort Apocalypse had more going for it, with enemies and walls and a reactor to destroy, but still offered a short playtime. Perhaps it would have been larger had Synapse not limited its scope for a cartridge release. And since I'm talking about Synapse already, let's go to 1983 to examine another micro-game it put out, The Pharaoh's Curse by Steve Coleman. It was a platform game of about the same scope as Pitfall in Fort Apocalypse, where you looted an ancient buried pyramid to get rich. There were 16 treasures to collect in its halls, and the game helpfully kept a tally of the ones still to find on the screen. Collecting an artifact not only got you points, but also an extra life. And that's a lot of extra lives. It's like Steve expected you to die. Well, it was pretty easy. As the manual pointed it out, you were not hurt by falling. Traps, though, both clearly visible spikes and pressure plate varieties, were a different story. And there were two enemy types, or simply two enemies, a mummy with deadly hugs and the pharaoh himself who could shoot you. But you could shoot back to make the guardians of the treasure disappear for a short while. However, the bat was back, too. They called it the Winged Avenger. It roamed the whole map and occasionally grabbed the player's character and then it would carry you across a few screens and drop you off in another place. Sometimes it helped, but mostly it was highly annoying. It was harder to get disoriented here than in Pitfall. Unlike David Crane's chain of procedurally assembled challenges, each screen of the Pharaoh's Curse looked unique, and many had multiple exits taking you to different other rooms. There aren't really any item puzzles, but some passages are locked with keys you have to find. At first I was confused, as there didn't appear to be any indication that you had a key on the screen, but the manual explained everything. In order to claim the keys, you must make contact with them. When you have done so, you will begin to rhythmically pulsate. End quote. That's one of the stranger ways to indicate you've got something. Once you've pulsated all over the place and got all the treasure, you could return to the surface, where your reward was the title screen, but with your score. People really play these games for the fun of it, not for some plot. The users of the TRS-80 and TRS-80 color computer got one of the all-time classics for the system in 83 when a company called Mitchtron released Time Bandit by Bill Dunleavy and Harry Lefner. We can deduce that Time Bandit was a clone of Tutankham from two clues. First, it was a maze action game where enemies appeared from spawners as you shot back with a gun that could only fire horizontally while looking for a key to open the exit door. Second, Harry Lefner has said it in his interview at atarilegend.com that Time Bandit had been started as a clone of Tutankham titled Pharaoh. It wasn't the company's first game about shooting enemies in a big maze, but Time Bandit had a twist. Instead of a short trip through a few stages, the game offered players what today would be called a hub level. 
It was not a safe hub, monsters still appeared and you still had to find a key, but the level had portals to 21 other levels grouped into three themes. Fantasy, Wild West and Space. After you beat any of those, you return to the hub and you could try a different level or the same one which would be a little harder. Every four cleared stages, the hub's layout changed and apparently the goal was to beat every single one of the 21 levels 16 times to close each one of the portals for good and then something happened. Presumably. I'm not sure if anyone's ever beaten the game. If the enemies couldn't get you, the boredom did. Apart from a few level gimmicks, the gameplay never changed. But it was an impressive TRS-80 and color computer game, if you had one of those. The real fame came to Time Bandit only in 85, when Mitchtron released an expanded Atari ST port with prettier graphics and more world themes. You could go to ancient Egypt, at last. Or to the future that didn't involve space. This version was a bestseller, but there was no Time Bandit 2, since, as Harry explains, Mitchtron was run by a guy who fired his vice president by locking him out of the building, reneged on contracts, reduced everyone's royalties by a third, so soon nobody wanted to work with or for Mitchtron. The end. For Bill Dunleavy, this was literally the last game in his career. Meanwhile, a company we already know, Ultimate Play the Game, took its very first steps into action-adventure in 83 with Attic Attack. Both words misspelled. That's just the company's style. The Stamper Brothers made yet another of those games about looking for keys in a maze, but they did try to make it a bit more involved. You played as a character trapped in a haunted mansion, composed of individual rooms connected by doors. There were lots of rooms making up the attic, the two floors, the basement and the caverns beneath, and they were drawn in an overhead view with perspective, so you could see the stuff on the walls too, and it all looked a bit 3D. Really nice for a Spectrum game. Some of the passages between the rooms were opening and closing randomly in a Haunted Mansion way, but many had to be unlocked by rubbing them with a green, red, yellow or blue keys, so Robinette's multiple key adventure style is back. Luckily, your character in Attic Attack could carry not one, but three items at a time. By the way, the game offered a choice of three playable characters. A knight, a wizard and a serf. Each had a different projectile weapon, controlled a bit differently and had access to exclusive shortcuts in the mansion. Say, wizards could travel through bookcases. The placement of key items in the game, save for the yellow key, was randomized. And those colored keys weren't even what you needed to open the front door of the mansion and escape. That feat required the big key, which unfortunately had been split into three parts and scattered around the place. Attic Attack had a lot of key collecting. And the mansion wasn't entirely safe. Each room had constantly spawning baddies to keep you occupied while you waited for the random doors to fling open, and in a few places you'd face classic movie monsters who could be dealt with only with specific items. So, bring a crucifix for Dracula. But you still had only three inventory slots, so you had to leave items you didn't need, performing a juggling act with keys, key parts and other stuff. And you had to be quick about it, since the basic enemies were everywhere and everyone wanted to eat your chicken. Yes, your health bar in the game was a roast chicken gradually depleted to the bone by attacks and by itself over time, so you needed to grab food to restore it. And good food, not poisonous mushrooms. Attic Attack brought together hectic action, inventory management and a bit of exploration under time pressure, made even more exciting by the game's manual, which did not explain any of the mechanics. And this first venture into more sophisticated games was a big success for Ultimate, so naturally the Stampers would make more games like that later. 
Additionally, the game was one of the inspirations for the TV show Nightmare, where kids set out into a blue-screen dungeon. 1983 was also the year of Robert Matson's Mountain King. This early platform game I talked about in episode 3.9 is relevant to us again, because again you were looking for a treasure in a fairly large, freely scrolling cave or mountainside. Before you could even touch the treasure, you had to find another MacGuffin by following sound clues and shining your flashlight at the barely visible thing to grab it. Then you stole the treasure and escaped, dodging bats trying to steal your stuff. Searching deep, vertically scrolling levels was also the main idea of Spelunker from Micrographic Image, where you needed to use flares, bombs and a ghost-busting spray to avoid violent death, guano and running out of oxygen. And the very end of 83 brought us major havoc from Atari, a classic cabinet combining a space shoot-em-up, a lander game and platform action. The platform part started simple, with short trips to the reactor you had to blow up, but then it built up on top of that with deadly flaws, one-way passages, security systems and helpful stuff like the boots that let you jump a second time in the air. So the game started as basic action and over a dozen levels adventurized itself. Now in these very early years, the division between action and action-adventure is barely detectable. They're just games. Today it's easier to sort them retroactively. Looking for keys has long been accepted as something belonging in action games, and from action-adventure players expect more tools, equipment. But even Robinette's adventure is mostly about the keys. And when I say that early action-adventure titles give you more freedom of exploration, I'm still talking about games that, with few exceptions, are beatable in under half an hour. By letting the player go every which way, they created a different feel, but the amount of content was still limited, and it's a far cry from the sprawling caves of the mainframes. Actually, one of the larger releases of 83 by Playtime, Load Runner, was a perfectly linear game of pure action and timing challenges. Its 150 levels would take you hours. But not everyone had access to cheap child labor. While I'm at it, the playthrough videos of many titles I've talked about so far today tend to clock at around 15 minutes, but I wouldn't use it as a good playtime estimate. Some videos are recorded on real hardware, but if you have the hardware to play them, you most likely have decades of practice at this point. But it's real. More common are long play videos recorded in emulators, and a lot of those use save states, which let you rewind the action to undo a mistake and retry a tough section however many times you like it, and it's great if you don't have decades of experience. But the final video will be just the good takes. It's not a perfect representation of a real gameplay experience, but World of Long Plays openly states they use save states, so you could do worse. I've seen videos recorded with cheats, and no mention of those in the description. And it's not infinite lives or the Konami code style of cheats, but outright full invincibility hacks. Anyway, the early proto-action-adventure games of 1979-83 were mostly short and differed from regular action titles, mainly in that instead of taking on a dozen one-screen levels in a sequence, you could move between a dozen screens freely. But as people learn how to code better and memory prices keep going down, in 1984, we're going to start seeing epic journeys that take upwards of 30 minutes to beat. Maybe even an hour. We'll start this year's survey with a few more of the old-style games to wave goodbye to the things that will feel woefully outdated very soon. In March 84, Activision released David Crane's Pitfall 2 Lost Caverns. Not only did David develop the game itself, but he engineered a special hardware unit that went into every cartridge to boost a system's performance. 
Thanks to it, Pitfall 2 used four audio channels instead of two, which allowed sight unseen, in-game music. For the scene sights, the game presented improved graphics with less flicker, waves on the surface of water, and vertical scrolling. The latter was necessary because now you were searching for treasure not in a flat jungle, but in an underground temple comparable in size to the map of Aztec, and full of pits and bats and balloons you rode to move up, and also you could swim. And in case you died, there were red crosses you could touch to resume from there. Actually, Pitfall 2 was very relaxed. You had infinite lives, there was no timer, and you didn't even have to find all the treasures to win. A real feel-good kind of game. The 1985 arcade version by Sega was less generous. Crane developed his super cartridge in the early 80s, honestly believing that it would help to extend the life cycle of the Atari 2600, and this would be the way going forward. But as we know, he bet on the wrong console. It was the Famicom and NES that lived longer thanks to cartridge expansions, and Activision's way forward was cranking out a Ghostbusters game in six weeks. Aside from Pitfall Harry, heading out into the ruins in 84 was Panama Joe, the star of the game Montezuma's Revenge from Parker Brothers. Actually, the game had been created by 16-year-old Robert Yeager of Utopia Software, who had made a pretty nice prototype and brought it to the Consumer Electronics Show, where he had, quoting his Digit Press interview, a tiny booth away from all the major players in games and near the porn stars. End quote. What porn stars, you may ask? I know you, you would ask. Well, see, with the rise of video cassette players, home video was taking off, adult home video in particular, and some even say that it was the porn industry's choice of VHS that helped the hardware standard defeat rival Betamax. A section dedicated to adult software, that is all the stuff the industry put on its cassettes, had emerged at Consumer Electronics Show. Then the people from the recently founded Adult Video News magazine joined in 84, and it became a proper industry event, informally called Adult Entertainment Expo, but technically a part of Consumer Electronics Show, whose runners would put up notices like Warning! Porn stars are using these bathrooms! The adult industry was not too happy with the arrangements, since they were shoved into a back room hard to access from the main show floor, so in 1998 they split, but their new official Adult Entertainment Expo was still held at the same place at the same time until 2012. So every time we're talking about CES from the mid-80s on, keep it in mind that as yuppies are presenting their new Macs and Amigas and other wonders of gadgetry, a few holes away there are stripper poles and people not wearing much at all quite professionally, and if you want to see more, here's a tape autographed by the star. What was I talking about? Ah yes, 16-year-old Robert Yeager bringing Montezuma's revenge to CES to gawk at the porn stars. Okay, maybe not. But Robert says the idea and the name of the project were given to him by his friend, and he himself knew nothing about the Aztecs. He also claims that any similarities to Indiana Jones are purely coincidental. Robert just focused on making a fun, big game. And he did a pretty good job combining several familiar ideas. Like the Pharaoh's Curse, Montezuma's Revenge is a treasure-hunting platform game where you're free to explore a multi-screen pyramid with dozens of rooms. The place is huge, and the game doesn't even let you explore the full map until you beat it a couple of times. Sadly, there is no rapid transit bat. There are enemies to avoid, dark rooms, time-disappearing floors and laser walls and conveyor belts, ancient Aztec lasers and conveyor belts, 
and color-coded locked doors requiring matching single-use keys. However, like an attic attack, you could carry a limited number of items, five, so route planning was in order. And apart from the keys, your pockets could also hold a torch, an amulet protecting you from enemies for a while, and single-use swords that could take those enemies out. The baddies were mostly classics, snakes, crabs, bats, and ubiquitous rolling skulls. Someone from Parker Brothers noticed Montezuma's Revenge at CES, maybe on the way to the other side of the show, the company picked it up for distribution and did some work on it, porting the game to other systems and cutting lots of content to make it suitable for a cartridge release. Then somebody leaked the original unfinished Utopia version. So there were two major revisions of the game floating out there. The preliminary Monty, as they called it, with tons of different rooms and no ending, and the commercial Montezuma's Revenge, polished but with a great deal of content replaced by straight hallways. And even in spite of those cuts, America's first consumer-oriented video games magazine, Electronic Games, called Montezuma's Revenge Game of the Year 1984. It sounds good, but Parker Brothers gave up on video games after the crash, and there wouldn't be any sequels. Well, until the late 90s, when both Montezuma and Pitfall returned in 3D, as the creatively bankrupt industry was searching its drawers for properties to reuse. So, we know the Game of the Year 1984, according to some magazine. Is there any point in looking at any other releases of the time? Of course. Let's check up on Britain, where Ultimate Play the Game is making something in great secrecy. We know about Night Law, but that came out at the very end of the year. Before that, there was Saberwolf and Underworld. Well, maybe they were made earlier, maybe not. The thing about these early mysterious days of Ultimate is that the Stampers sometimes published games not in the order they were made. Supposedly, it had something to do with whether the market was ready, but it looks more like their brainstorming or prototyping sessions resulted in several similar games, so they spaced out the releases to generate stable revenue over time and preserve some novelty. Saberwolf shared with Attic Attack the main objective of collecting randomly scattered parts of a key to escape a deadly maze. Only this time, the key was an amulet in four parts, and instead of a room, each screen presented a section of a jungle maze. There was no inventory, no items. Neither did you get a choice of character to play as, always remaining a pith-helmeted explorer with a sword. The sword could help against generic random enemies, but like the mansion of Attic Attack, the jungle contained a few special invulnerable foes. Your best bet with those was either avoiding them or touching grass. Yeah, the jungle paths had plenty of orchids growing, and running over one temporarily painted your explorer in that flower's color. Three of the five colors granted invulnerability, plus affected movement, and you really wanted to be blue so that you ran much faster. With this reliance on color, I'm not sure Saberwolf was playable with a black and white TV set, but it's a game you wanted to see in color. The jungle, the flowers, and the animated enemy sprites were putting the whole spectrum of the spectrum on display. And that's when many other developers avoided the color issues of the system by going monochrome. Saberwolf was a commercial success for Ultimate, the company was still on the rise, but I gotta say, I'm not a fan of the search the area for a randomly placed set of key items core gameplay mechanic that the Stampers were beginning to mass-produce. On paper, it sounds like it should generate an immense number of possible scenarios, but the reality of gameplay is that the more things change, the more they stay the same. 
Let's take an abstract example. A world of 20 rooms, and in those rooms you need to grab 5 key items to win. You can't know in advance which rooms those things are in. On your first run, you'd find the items, maybe mapping the maze on paper for future infinite playthroughs. On your second run, you'd use the map to figure out the optimal path through every room and follow it. And you can just do it again on the third and the fourth and the tenth go, and the only thing that would really change would be when exactly you pick up the final item and win. At one point it might be in the fifth room already, another time you'd have to walk all 20, but that's the whole difference. The strategy remains the same, and there's no reason to change it. The early games from Ultimate have been re-released more recently, in the Rare Replay compilation, and so they have modern guides on how to unlock various achievements for online bragging rights, and the Saberwolf guide at trueachievements.com simply outlines a path that takes you through every jungle clearing where the pieces of the amulet may appear, at that point you should have all of them, head for the exit. At least Ultimate added some things on top of this grind. Attic Attack had the inventory and hunger management, Saberwolf had the orchids, both threw random enemies at you, and the Stampers never gave away all the game mechanics in the manuals, so players had to explore and take notes early on. But I have seen titles trying to coast on just the randomness. Most memorable was an extremely obscure 2006 adventure game, Scavenger Hunter, where some aliens have stolen stuff and dumped it into several thematic worlds. So you go into those tiny worlds to look for the items, and they are placed randomly, and the worlds are randomized in that some doors are open and some are closed, and there's a handful of randomized passwords or mass puzzles, and the developers promise more than 3,000 unique playthroughs. But they all would be exactly the same. You walk into, say, a kitchen, and open every single cupboard and every single drawer looking for a thing, and next time you do the same, only maybe you get in through another door, and maybe you actually find something once in a while. Scavenger Hunter took its creators, a Canadian couple, seven years to make, and it feels like an enormous amount of wasted effort. Anyway, with Saberwolf and the rearview mirror, what is Ultimate Play the Game, please, showing off in its next game, Underworld? Surprise, it's more of the same, but in a different wrapper. Underworld is a platform game, and a direct sequel to Saberwolf, where you have to kill three guardians and escape from a network of caverns. Every guardian could be killed only by a specific weapon, a bow, a dagger, or a torch, and each weapon had four rooms where it could appear in the game world, that's randomized. So it's the starting room, 12 weapon rooms, three guardian rooms, and three exit rooms at the very top. 19 rooms of key gameplay content. The total number of rooms in the game? Almost 600. Good luck. The inflated room number may have been caused by the gaming press of the day reporting room count in reviews as a metric for the amount of content and of game's quality. But as always, you see improvements only in the statistic you're measuring. Underworld does have a couple of interesting features. Enemies like eagles and flying jellyfish could follow you between screens, didn't hurt you directly, but love to knock you off platforms or grab and drop you into pits, and falling far did take away your lives. You had a special tool at your disposal, a rope which could be attached to the ceiling for climbing down long shafts. Going up was achieved by riding bubbles rising from volcanic craters. It's nice, but spread pretty thin over 600 screens. Maybe Ultimate was saving its strength to offer something truly special in late 84 with Night Lore? 
not colorful graphics, that's for sure. For the somewhat new isometric 3D visuals, they had to go monochrome, but at least every room was tinted in its own color, and the sprites and backgrounds were delightfully detailed. As for the gameplay, your task was to bring 14 items in a certain sequence to a magical cauldron so that it could bubble together a cure for your new werewolf curse. There was a clock at the bottom of the screen showing the current time of day, and whenever it went from day to night, the pith-helmeted explorer stopped, twisted, and became a werewolf, which didn't affect the gameplay that much, except some enemies didn't like the monster, in particular the wizard pacing around the cauldron. So you had to wait until daytime sometimes, but waiting was bad, as you only had 40 days to lift the curse. You'd go into the cauldron room as a human, see what item the cauldron flashed above itself, and went looking for it somewhere. There were seven item types, and of course their distribution in the game world was randomly picked out of a few preset patterns. Your starting position in the maze was randomized too, as were the items the cauldron asked for, though here the full sequence was a preset loop, and only the point where you started it was random. You wouldn't succeed in collecting all the ingredients on your first try, or on the second, because 40 days of in-game time ran by fast. To stand a chance, you'd need to take notes on what was randomized how, so that instead of fetching one item at a time, you could stuff all three slots of your inventory with something relevant. By the way, outside of their role in the recipe, the seven item types were functionally identical and did nothing. However, just like a chicken, you could lay an item underneath yourself and that lifted the character, allowing you to jump from a higher spot in the 3D world and reach more places. Or clear some spikes that would have killed you if you tried a ground level jump. Nightlaw expected you to do this and also push various objects in its rooms to build stairs and some rooms were set up so that enemies would push objects to inconvenience you. Ultimate had a basic physics engine, and it wanted everyone to notice it. Though unlike Ant Attack from 83, Night Law didn't let you switch the isometric view to a different angle, so another feature of its rooms was stuff hidden behind walls and under platforms that vanished when you landed on them. The hidden stuff tended to be deadly. So Ultimate Play the Game is definitely trying to impress its audience with new action game mechanics, and skilled programming is letting those games function smoothly on the specy, Yet it's also clear that the Stampers have no idea how to build a large adventure, something more advanced than a padded fetch quest. Attic Attack was a flash of inspiration, and now it's more of the same. But Nightlaw was winning awards and selling loads, and Ultimate was a business, so it made more games like it. Different themes, different action elements, same overall structure. In 85, the company was getting a reputation of a one-trick pony, and in 86, the Stampers advanced to beating a dead horse. But at that point, they had Rare, and Ultimate was disposable anyway. But this is Ultimate Play the Game, the most revered Spectrum developer. Could anyone else make a better specky action-adventure game in 84? Yes. His name is Steve Turner. According to the interview at retrovideogamer.co.uk, programmer and composer Steve Turner got into game programming because he had seen what was coming out on micros in the early 80s and felt that compared to coin-op games, home titles were primitive and he could do better. His first home computer was a ZX80 kit, not a game machine, but a decent practice for the upcoming Spectrum. Steven made a game, it was published, earned money, so he made it his job, hired his friend, programmer Andrew Braybrook to help, 
and got a company called GraftGold to pay less taxes. The reason Steve Turner named his game enterprise GraftGold is that he didn't. As he says, he bought an off-the-shelf company, so with all the paperwork already filed by a faceless accountant, and the name was good enough. The games Turner and Braybrook created in the mid-80s were published by one company, Hewson Consultants, which also sounds like a boring accounting name, but it's actually one of the more notable British game companies of the period. Anyway, the game Steve Turner has for us in 1984 is Avalon, also known as The Legend of Avalon. There's a lord of chaos in the collapsing Roman Britain, and Mage Merok sets out to take care of the villain. You kinda play as Marok, but you don't control him. See, Marok is smart. Instead of going himself, he sends an astral projection. If it's destroyed, you take a penalty to your endgame score, but another projection steps in and continues the quest without losing any progress. You can't be stopped. The astral projection framing also does magic to the interface design. You control the action with four directional keys or a joystick and a single fire button. But everything in Avalon is magic, and when you're not doing stuff, you see a menu of spells. You start with one, move. Select it, hit the fire button, and move your wizard projection around the room. The room graphics are almost monochrome, but scroll, and are drawn in perspective so you see the floor, the back and the side walls, and the doors that may be in them. To open a door if it's not locked, you simply rub your wizard on the knob. You close doors the same way too, and it does have a purpose. In the walkthrough video on the RZX Archive YouTube channel, you can see the player luring some slow guards into a side room, running out and then slamming the door shut, and I think moving a few rooms away deactivated them, because normally these guys follow you from room to room, and even close doors behind themselves to make escape harder. So doors are key. Actually, no, keys are key. There are keys too. You might even pick up some lying on the floor but you won't be able to use them until you find another spell, Servant. Get that, find a quiet spot, press the button to stop moving, and get your Servant out. This spell summoned a spirit you could move around the screen, and it could collect items. Or you could rub it on your wizard to take out an item from your pocket, say, a key, and then fly that key to a door or a chest to unlock it, and maybe even search the chest. And later in the game you'd find a sword, and the Servant totally could pull it out of the wizard, and start sweeping the blade over enemies to kill them. By the way, yes, Avalon is a graphical adventure game with a menu and cursor interface running on the ZX Spectrum in 1984, predating both Deja Vu and the Famicom Portopia. Steve Turner is that good. Apart from Move and Servant, the game had other spells too. Some of them could be toggled on and they'd run in the background, shielding you from harm, or making previously invisible doors visible. The problem with background spells was that they drained the same energy meter that acted as your health so you didn't want to overuse them. Energy could be restored, you didn't have to die to regain it, but the means to do it were limited. There was the Energize spell, but you found it on scrolls, each good only for a few uses. Other scrolls had ranged attack spells you could aim with a cursor. You'd probably need those too. A neat thing about Avalon and its focus on combat and doors and a somewhat slow interface is that whenever you healed or took damage, the game beeped, and the lower the beep was, the lower your energy level was, so you didn't have to look away from the action at the energy bar to know you were about to die. This isn't the earliest game to represent health with sound, but we'll get to Dungeons of Daggerath some other time. Unlike the manuals of Ultimate Play the Game titles, obfuscating simplicity by not telling the player anything apart from the control keys, 
The instructions for Avalon explained the spell system well, without giving everything away, and the player was given a full map of the game world in isometric view, showing most visible doors and chests and landmarks, like a fish lying on the floor somewhere. The map was split into areas such as Catacombs of Undead or Mines of Madness, and they were all thematic sets of rooms. To make the overall world feel larger, more spread out, whenever you traveled between areas, Avalon went into a racing game mode similar to Atari's Night Driver. You steered your wizard in third-person view in the dark, the walls of the passage weaved left and right, and sometimes you had to dodge a bat or a giant spider. I think there should be more wizard racing games. And that's Avalon, a promising alternative to randomized item collection marathons. The new interface is a bit rough, but the quality of life features are apparent. The health beeps, uh, there was a spell to teleport back to where you died, and you kept all your spells when you died. Play, explore, have fun. The puzzles could have been more advanced, more than keys and invisible doors and figuring out the best way to take out certain enemies, like a spirit who walked through solid walls. But this was the very first of what Steve Turner called adventure movie, and he'd spent most of the effort on the engine. So let's give him some time. Graft Gold goes bankrupt only in 1998. Another British game that's worth a mention is Alchemist, programmed at Imagine Software by Ian Wedderburn and released early in the year. It's a platform game featuring a big multi-room maze with some horizontal scrolling, and you search it for four pieces of a powerful spell to take down the villain. The player's character is a wizard who can walk, go up and down the stairs, carry one support spell and one item, like a key or an ingredient for the Big Bang. He has limited stamina, that is health, and regenerating spell energy depleted when you cast spells. And even when the wizard wasn't carrying any spells, there was still magic to be done. He could shoot lightning from his hands or turn into a bird. The bird had a different, lower hitbox, predating a similar arrangement in Thaxter. And, well, the bird could fly, like the birds in Joust, so it was a flappy bird. Now, the control scheme in this game was bizarre. The same function would be assigned to every other key in a whole row on a keyboard. But Specky Onus had seen worse, and as far as early action adventure titles go, Alchemist did okay on release. The games I've been talking about so far have one thing in common. You play them alone. We know from the story of the first multi-user dungeon that having multiple users in a game with complex item puzzles means nothing gets done. People move stuff around and every player is like a bat to all other players. But what if you try it with these simpler item collection action-adventure games? And what if you make ruining the other player's day the whole point? Do you remember Fidel Castro from last time? Well, after he and Che gunned down an army of soldiers and deposed a corrupt dictator, Castro came to power and briefly seemed like a cool dude. But something about his policies was ticking off Cuba's number one political cartoonist, Antonio Proyas, who Castro had liked for his satire of the previous government. But Proyas started satirizing Castro's regime and soon found himself labeled as a foreign spy. In May 1960, Antonio left Cuba for the United States. But Antonio Proyas was not like those gusanos who came to Florida to complain their opulent Cuban estates had been seized. He was a working man, and he was broke. So he got a job drawing comics for the Mad Magazine. Proyas barely spoke a word of English, but luckily his best work was non-verbal. And in January 61, Mad published the first issue of his new comic strip, Spy vs. Spy, 
Cold War cloak and dagger operations personified and mocked. Two spies, one in black, the other in white, shake hands, smile, take a table at an outdoor cafe, pour one another a cup of hot something, and looking each other in the sunglasses-covered eyes, discreetly dump on the ground their cup's contents, which are immediately pounced at by two cats. The spies go their separate ways, leaving two dead cats on the ground. Dark, funny, and in the spirit of the times. Antonio Proeus would not run the comic even for a full decade, but after his retirement it was continued by another artist, then another, and it's still running. It's less of a topical satire now, but it's not like global spying and assassinations have ceased providing new material, sometimes with collateral damage, like those two cats. Now, I also mentioned Sylvester Stallone in the previous two episodes, and here comes number three. In 1984, another film with him was released, Rhinestone. This musical comedy was such a massive flop and an all-around failure that when it came to the Golden Raspberry Awards, it failed to win Worst Picture. Stallone got his worst actor, though. Anyway, co-producer of this film, Richard Spitalny, also happened to be a founder of a game company, First Star Software. However, First Star Software owes its existence and name to computer enthusiast and programmer Fernando Herrera, interviewed for the Atari 8-Bit podcast. Herrera created a game for his son, who'd been born nearly blind and had to get eye surgery only a few months old to restore vision. So a few years later, the father coded an eyesight test and then a learning aid for his kid. He made some other programs, put out a small ad and got noticed. The teaching program, named My First Alphabet, was released through Atari Program Exchange just when Atari began awarding the best APX programs with an Atari star. And Fernando Herrera won the very first star. This got him some money and put him in the spotlight. Literally, TV people came around. Then he was contacted by some movie producers, including Richard Spitalny, and First Star Software was born in 82. Herrera provided the game that put the company on the map, a simple yet pretty shoot-em-up Astro Chase. The producers on the team handled the game's promotion, brought out Herrera's son to tell the story and show him playing Astro Chase. Spitalny shook all the right hands, and at some point, First Star Software became half-owned by Warner. This opened a few more doors, and Richard Spitalny was able to pick out some properties he thought could be turned into great games. Superman, Wonder Woman, and the best one, Spy vs. Spy. Richard, neither a programmer nor a designer, had some ideas for Spy vs. Spy, the game. It had to be funny, to have some spy gadgets and traps, and to allow two players to play at the same time, and to flow in such a way that it wasn't decided until the very end. He talks about it on the Retro Hour podcast. The programming of the original Commodore 64 version of Spy vs. Spy was handled by Michael Riedel, who also helped Spitalny solve some design problems to create a classic. Spy vs. Spy seems very simple. All you need to do is search an embassy for a passport, secret plans, money, and a key. With all of this, you can head past the guard at the airport exit door and escape. But there are complications. First of all, you can only carry one item. To collect the four necessary things, you also need to find a briefcase to put them all into. There's a time limit as well. Luckily, the eight available embassy maps can get big, but they're not random and neither are the locations of the key items. Well, the rooms they're in don't change, but every room gets a new set of furniture or other objects every game, so you still have to search a little. But above it all, there is the big complication that the very same embassy is being searched by another spy controlled by another player, 
who is observing the action on the same screen as you, as it's split into an upper and a lower halves. And there's only one briefcase, one key, one passport, one secret plans, and one money in here, so only one of you may get out. And that's how things get spicy. The way the game is set up, of course, means that if you have even one of the key items, the other player has to come and get it. And maybe you can resolve everything in combat. When both spies were in the same room, their items were stashed in the furniture, and you went into a fighting game mode, basically. Except this is 1984, and martial arts are only entering video games. You move your spy around the room, and all rooms are drawn in side view with perspective, like an Avalon, and if you press the joystick button, you automatically face the opponent. Then you have a choice of two moves. Swinging the joystick up then down makes you do an overhead swing. Swinging back then forward relative to the character's facing lets you do a jab. Yes, it's gesture-based controls predating most similar arrangements in pure fighting games. The issue with fighting in Spy vs. Spy is that if you lose, you're out of the game for a short while, and you've just handled what you were carrying to the other player. So you'll want to play smarter. You'll want to use traps. Double-tapping the button when you're not in a fight switches you to the Trapulator menu right there on the screen, and it lets you pick out of five traps to place as a surprise for your rival, or yourself if you forget about it. The time bomb is the easiest, you simply drop it, and if anyone's in the room when the bomb goes off, they die. A piece of furniture can be trapped with a bomb, or a spring that launches the unlucky spy into a wall, or through a door into the next room and beyond, until he crashes into something and expires. Doors can be trapped by a bucket of water that somehow electrocutes you, or a gun tied to a string. The limit to the total number of traps you can deploy is fairly generous. 12 per player on the smallest map of only 6 rooms. In the largest embassy, the limit is 72 traps per player. It is in your best interest not to forget where you put your 6 dozen traps. Dying in Spy vs. Spy is quite unusual too. When you're shot or blown up or whatever, you go to Spy Heaven for 7 seconds, but your personal timer ticks down much faster than normal until you return. So you lose 20 extra seconds on top of the 7 without being out of the game for half a minute. That would be annoying. Another way to lose time is to call up the 6 function of the Trapulator, the map. Without the map, you only get a navigation aid showing the way to your starting room. The map presents the full layout of the floor, handy if you suspect that the enemy has moved and hidden stuff somewhere. This information came at the price of 15 seconds off your timer, and of course, in the few moments the map was on your half of the screen, your rival could check it out for absolutely free. Yes, you can spy in Spy vs. Spy. You'd probably want to spy to see what rooms the opponent is searching and what traps they place anyway, because traps can be countered by specific objects in the embassy. Say, the water bucket over a door is negated by an umbrella from a coat rack, so if you need to get through, you can. However, you still can only carry one item, so you hide your briefcase in a drawer before getting the umbrella, trigger the trap, come back, open the drawer and get back your bomb. Boom. Time out. The first games on the new Embassy map are chaotic and full of random searching and trapping. Then you learn the initial positions of the key items, and your friend knows that you know them, and you know that they know that you know, and this is when the time for mind games comes. Cue feints, double bluffs and distractions may be in the real world since you're sitting side by side. 
One last pinch of chaos is added by the option to play with both spies unaware of where the exit to the airport is. It will appear in a random location only once all the key items are in the briefcase. What better time to find out that you have to get to the very same room you elaborately booby-trapped at the start of the match. So, Spy vs. Spy was different, but it is a 1984 action-adventure game with a typical MacGuffin collection objective and various items to help you deal with obstacles. The big difference is that those obstacles are not steps of a developer-made or procedural scenario. They come from the other player, who in turn has to deal with the crap you are throwing their way. And if you had no friends? There was a single-player mode where the other spy was computer-controlled, and way less exciting. In the microcomputer circles, they received Spy vs. Spy very warmly. There were 8 and 16-bit ports, and striking while the iron was hot, First Star Software released a more of the same Spy vs. Spy 2 in 85, with a tropical island theme and scrolling areas. In 86, we got the third Spy vs. Spy, set in the Arctic, where you had to maintain a positive body temperature. The same year, Japan saw the Famicom port of the original, done by Kemco, the same company that would port Mac Ventures to the console. The game sold well, but then the franchise just stopped, and no new games came out until the 2005 PlayStation 2 title, which didn't do so well. In 2012, there was a mobile port of the original. Sadly, it's already been discontinued and pulled from stores. But this is definitely not the last time we hear of the game's programmer, Michael Riedel. Still, 1984 is not done surprising us. To dive into the next surprise, we need to get acquainted with the work of Zilpha Keatley Snyder. She was an award-winning writer of fiction for children and young adults who started getting published in the mid-60s. Her work is best categorized as fantasy, but it's a grounded kind of fantasy where the magical is either a tool or a metaphor or literally only exists in the character's imagination, while the main focus of the story is on realistic people and their relationships. As a child, Zilpha used to play a slightly dangerous game of crossing an oak grove without touching the ground, imagining something dangerous lurking down below, and the memories of it came back to her in the 70s. In 75, 76 and 77, Snyder wrote the Green Sky Trilogy. Its first novel, Below the Root, introduced the readers to a society of Kindar, who lived in the branches of massive trees to avoid the threats of the ground level. The Kinda had some mild magical powers, but they were growing increasingly rare, keeping the story relatable. They were also, quite topically, actively anti-war, suppressing negative emotions and violent behaviors because they were the descendants of some other people who had completely ruined their world by war and conflict. So the Kinda were literal tree-huggers in every way. Of course, it wasn't all so simple, so you'd soon meet another society, Edlings, who had no problem with living on the ground and not in those weird trees. The two groups naturally had plenty of prejudices against one another, and the books developed into a story of trying to bring the peoples together. Along the way, Zilpha Keatley Snyder introduced children to politics, factional disputes, more politics, terrorism, and, going by the reviews, unsatisfying cheesy endings. Some years later, in the early 80s, Zilpha got a visit from programmer Dale DeSharoon, who happened to live and work an hour's drive away from her in Northern California. Dale used to be a part-time school teacher, then his school started getting microcomputers, and he didn't see the point, but they told him to go take programming classes at Radio Shack, and he did. He even started to like it. 
Dale DeSharoon wound up creating educational games for his students, and just like Fernando Herrera, he had a few of them published through Atari Program Exchange, winning a couple of prizes, which netted him a few thousand dollars. Around this time, as he said it in his interview at Hardcore Gaming 101, Dale realized that making games would earn him at least as much as a full-time teaching job. So he became Dale DeSharoon Incorporated and switched to making games. One of his lesser-known ones was Adventure Creator, also released in 84. Not as advanced as Adventure Construction Set, it's a tool for making very simple action-adventure games with multi-screen mazes in overhead view. Neat, but we're interested in a different title. The one Dale DeSharoon came to Zilpha Keatley Snyder to make. She had never used computers before, but Dale explained, introduced Zilpha to some adventure games, and she was absolutely thrilled by the new possibilities. So, the development of this game involved Dale designing and programming, his artist William Grotzinger doing the sprites, and Zilpha mapping the whole world and writing dialogue, character thoughts, and whatever else needed to be written. Because of her big role in the game's creation, and its story starting right after the end of the third book, this new action-adventure, titled Below the Root, ended up being an official fourth entry in the Green Sky trilogy. So how did this literary work play then? Below the Root is an early platform game without any scrolling, but its massive world was made up of 512 screens. That was enough to present the populated branches of ten enormous trees, the ground beneath them, multiple levels of underground caverns, building interiors, and even a world you could go to in your sleep. And none of this stuff was procedurally generated. In fact, the original Commodore 64 version even had a built-in level editor, disabled in the released game, but people have found it anyway. The player would be exploring this handcrafted world as one of the five quester characters you got to pick from at the start of the adventure. Readers might even remember them from the books. Three were kinders, and two were erdlings. Apart from that, each character had a different home, where they started, and where they returned to if they sort of died. You couldn't actually die, but being tied or hurt could make you collapse, and you'd wake up back home the following day. There was a 50-day time limit on the whole thing, so don't die too much. That aside, the characters also differed in their two key statistics, stamina and spirit limit. Stamina was a measure of your physical development. The higher it was, the more items you could carry, the longer you could go without rest, the more food you could stuff yourself with to power your rest and activity. Additionally, stamina determined how big your jumps were. So if you decided to play as a nine-year-old Pommer, she wouldn't be able to reach some areas, she'd get tired and hungry all the time, and she wouldn't be able to carry enough food to last her long either. What the girl had in spades, though, was Spirit Limit. Spirit Limit was a measure of your magical abilities. You had both the current spirit level, that is how many points you had to spend on magic, and it regenerated over time, and the maximum spirit limit, which determined both how many points you could stock up and which spirit skills you could use. If your spirit limit was zero, as one character started the game, you couldn't do magic, don't even try. The weakest spirit skill was Pen's Emotions, a form of mind reading. It told you what a character was feeling, providing extra context to the words they said. Also, it's a nice way to make non-player characters feel more alive on 8-bit systems, where neither good facial animation nor voice acting were available. Next, you'd advance to Pensing Messages, a more effective mind read, for which you had to stand pretty close to the target, but it lets you get hints even out of people who didn't want to talk to you. 
Next, there was Heal, that restored a bit of your rest and food levels. More dramatic was the Groom Spreak skill, that lets you grow a branch you were standing on, and having bigger platforms in platform games is always a pretty big deal. Groom Spreak definitely helped reach places. You know, a lot of these terms seem to have German roots. I keep expecting a Bilestowed reference. Then I remember that the books were written in the 70s. Anyway, the final two spirit skills let you teleport. First, you'd learn how to teleport an object on the screen, usually towards yourself so you could grab it, and the ultimate skill was to teleport yourself. A neat trick, plus the manual almost directly told you that this skill was necessary for beating the game. Both stamina and spirit limit could be improved in the course of your adventure, but not in a role-playing game way. You didn't gain experience and level up, nor did you improve by using skills. For stamina, you had to find and drink strange elixirs. There were only a few of them in the world, and finding and getting all of them is a mini-adventure in itself. When you had an elixir, you didn't have to drink it right away, and saving it for later could be handy, because it also refilled your rest and food levels. Boosting your spirit was a touch less physical. Several characters in the game taught you when you first met them. A small increase of the spirit limit could also be obtained by pensing the emotions of a handful of rabbits and monkeys somewhere out there. But not snakes and spiders. Those were enemies who knocked you down. Why can't we ever connect with snakes? So, you've picked your character, you know where their strong and weak points are and how to develop. Now what? You explored this massive world using a joystick with one button. It lets you walk left and right, jump in an arc, depending on your stamina level, and if you kept moving after a jump, you'd start running, which had no effect on the jumps. You could also crawl, but that's less new to us than the ability to fall off the edge of a platform and glide. You just pressed a button in a direction mid-air and started a controlled diagonal descent. Though, to pull it off, you needed to carry a shuba, that's a glide suit. Bites, rough landings, or walking into brambles and walls came with a chance of ripping the suit, so you'd want to carry spares. Due to its often urgent necessity, Shuba was the only item you could use with a single button press. Everything else was accessed through a menu at the bottom of the screen, offering more than a dozen options. And if you were trying to teleport something, the game put a cursor on the screen, so hello again, a menu and cursor interface. The menu was how you ate, used the magic and the items, picked stuff up, and knocked yourself out if you got hopelessly lost and wanted to return home at the cost of another day. Useful equipment included tools for cutting brambles, ropes for creating platforms to connect close branches, and lamps for dark caves. A few characters wanted specific items delivered to them for helping you with story progression. And there were several types of food. Only erdlings could eat roasted meat without consequences, while for tree-hugging kinders, meat was such a shock, it drained them of spirit energy. You could also get tokens, a form of money. With these, you'd walk into a shop, pick buy from the menu, and the owner would let you take an item. Or just walk into people's homes. Some of them had stuff lying around, and if you talk to them, they'd often let you take something, and maybe invite you to come the next day. No, you couldn't just barge in, loot the place, and leave. That would be impolite. And some people might offer you to use their hammock to rest. But, you know, there were political tensions both above and below the route, so, just to be on the safe side, you should pence the people offering their hospitality. Some were planning to steal your items, some wanted to kidnap you, which moved your character to a faraway hut, which was a pain to get out of. You could get kidnapped by shady people patrolling remote areas, too. I haven't talked about the combat in Below the Root yet. That's not to say it was impossible. The game had one thing, a kind of machete, 
that could be used as a weapon. Now, its primary application was clearing away the brambles, which regrew all the time, and the other cutting tools in the game broke down after a while, so the unbreakable machete saved you a lot of carried weight. But you could kill with it, too. Except killing an animal, even a spider, came with an immediate and permanent reduction of both stamina and spirit limit. Only by a point, but that already made it harder for most characters to reach the spirit limit necessary in the final screen of the game. Killing a human drop your stats by 5 points. For one character, this was enough to make the quest unbeatable. The game didn't prevent you from killing, it's just that there were consequences. So, Below the Root was a one-of-a-kind, charming blend of adventure, platforming and anti-war fantasy for children. A review from the September 85 issue of the Compute magazine noted the non-violent spirit of the game, as well as the fact that two of the playable characters were girls, also a rarity for the day. And yet, I can't find anything about the game's commercial performance. Only three versions were ever made, Commodore 64, Apple II and PC, oddly enough. They were published by Wyndham Classics, founded in the autumn of 84, so the game must have come out late in the year. Wyndham released only a handful of titles before vanishing, but it was just a brand of Spinnaker Software, a huge edutainment company. At this time, late 84, Spinnaker spun up several brands to market to all audiences, only to discover that edutainment wasn't so hot anymore. So in 85, the company abruptly shifted to business software and regular games, for the rest of the 80s. Wyndham Classics, the brand for graphical adventures based on literary works, did not make the transition. But Below the Root was not the last time Dale de Sharoon worked with Spinnaker, so we'll be back to them. By the way, I suppose the reason Spinnaker wanted a release for the very upmarket and underperforming IBM PC is the great reception of a game it had published in 83, In Search of the Most Amazing Thing. I'll get to it talking about games with more open worlds, because you roamed its map in a hot air balloon, visited different cities, traded with the locals. It was an adventure even grander than those we're exploring today. But perhaps we should roam the map more too, because 84 was a pretty good year in Japanese action-adventuring as well. It is time to look at another great and terrible hit by Masanobu Endor. The Tower of Druaga. We know Andu through Xevious, but he wasn't all about scrolling shooters with elaborate backstories and sneaking secrets past the management at Namco. At some point in the early 80s, on a business trip to America, Masanobu picked up an edition of Dungeons & Dragons, and it made a big impact. At the same time, he was enjoying playing Wizardry on the Apple II, and this concentrated exposure to role-playing games started giving Masanobu Endor ideas. By the way, this means the chain of inspiration between Plato RPGs and Namco's upcoming cabinet had only one intermediate link. Anyway, Endor started to design something, but then realized his concept had too much role-playing game and not enough action. So he dialed it down. For the moment, he would lean into action. Hardware design was not a problem. For the project, they modified the system board of Mappy, that platform game about a mouse cop opening doors and dropping bells on cat burglars. But you wouldn't enter the Tower of Druaga as a mouse cop. You played as Prince Gilgamesh, known as Gil to his friends, and somewhere in America, Stuart Smith was making his Epic of Gilgamesh-based game for Adventure Construction Set at around the same time. So Gil headed into the Tower of Demon Druaga to free a damsel in distress, a kidnapped priestess, Kai. The goddess Ishtar also involved herself in the plot, but she was there mostly in spirit. 
Gilgamesh entered the tower equipped with a sword, a shield, and a couple of extra lives. The sword was somewhat detailed for a video game weapon. When you pressed your singular attack button, Gil slowly pulled out the blade and pointed it forward. With this, you could run into enemies to hurt and eliminate them. Some died in contact with the sword, some had to be literally run through multiple times. An additional twist the game did not tell players about was that Gil had a hidden energy statistic and fighting tougher enemies depleted it, and if it ran out, you died. Although you died even faster if an enemy hit you. All their attacks were fatal if they connected. And dying meant restarting the current floor of the tower, so don't die. But there were ways to avoid instant death. In close combat you resisted while the energy meter lasted, however long it may be, Ranged attacks, so various magical spells, could be deflected by the shield. But Gilgamesh only held the shield in front of him when he was not using his sword, and pulling it out shifted the shield to the left side of his body. So poking enemies while deflecting shots took some skill. You'd have plenty of time to practice it, since the sword and the shield were your main tools for the whole game. The whole game meant the 60 floors of the tower. Each floor was an overhead maze larger than the screen, so it scrolled, and the layout of each particular floor was always the same. They even put a reference to Pac-Man into one. At the same time, in each playthrough, the positions of the exit door to leave the floor and the key to open said door were randomized, usually spacing them out in the most annoying way possible. The levels were mazes you could not see entirely, you had no minimap, so taking a wrong turn and having to backtrack were almost inevitable, and Gil was a slow walker. The Tower of Druaga ran a Space Panic-style bonus timer, and once the bonus timer ran out, it switched to the final one-minute countdown in red digits. The digits were a distraction, though, as the red timer also spawned a couple of invincible enemies, Wisps, who rapidly swept the maze and killed on contact. As for the regular enemies, the first ones you met were Slimes. Those numerous, potentially deadly, but mostly harmless blobs came in different colors with different abilities. Later ones would not only menacingly jiggle along the hallways, but attack with spells, and eventually spells strong enough to destroy maze walls. Another class of magic users were a cast of magician enemies, who had this funny habit of appearing a short distance away from Gil, throwing a spell, and vanishing again. Other magic users? were ghosts whom you couldn't see, but they were definitely there, as evidenced by spells flying at you from out of nowhere. Not all enemies were good with magic. The tower also housed a selection of knights, plus a lizardman from D&D, and these were the folks that tried to stab you. They also carried armor, so Gil had to run through them a few times. The catch here was that the invisible energy meter drained as you fought them, and you only regained energy by killing enemies. So if you tried to fight many knights at once, instead of taking them on one by one, you died. Then you met dragons, who could breathe fire, and I don't think it counted as a spell, so the shield wouldn't help. Dragons also had this funny property of not harming Gil on contact if he approached with his sword sheathed. But try to stab them, and you'll regret it. Yet another monster Masanobu Endor borrowed from Dungeons & Dragons were Ropers. Ropers traditionally look like rock formations in caves, except these rocks have secret tentacles and a healthy appetite. In the Tower of Druaga, ropers looked like posts with tentacles sticking out, or maybe like hat racks. Just like dragons, they let you walk through them if you didn't have the sword out, but unlike dragons, ropers set Gil's invisible energy meter to one point, meaning any serious sword fight would be fatal. Now, all of that sounds bad, and it was, 
If Gil faced the late game enemies, he stood no chance of survival. That is, if he still had his starting equipment. Almost every single floor of the Tower of Druaga contained a treasure chest with an item. However, those chests were hidden, and to make them appear in the maze you had to do... something. The game never told you what. Early on, fulfilling the conditions was almost unavoidable. Say, on the first floor, all you had to do was kill a few slimes. The later secret objectives would become more esoteric. Let the timer run down to a certain value, destroy a specific wall, visit specific spots in the maze, block spells while walking, open the exit without killing anyone, and the truly great one. Press the Player 1 Start button on the cabinet. Why would you even do this after starting the game? By the way, yes, there was a two-player mode, but alternating, not co-op. So, finding the treasures, and retroactively figuring out the exact conditions when you make one appear somehow by accident, was an absolute hell. But you had to do it. Say, the first floor chest had a pickaxe that lets you break one wall in the maze. Great to save time escaping levels. Technically it could do more than one wall, but past the first one you ran the risk of breaking and losing the tool, and you needed it for some later treasures. Actually, breaking the first pickaxe on the seventh floor was the trigger for the chest with the next, more durable pickaxe. The second floor treasure, also easy to find, was one of the most important things in the whole tower. A pair of boots that made Gil walk faster. If you miss these, restart. Somewhere high you'd find a pair of gauntlets, which made Gil pull out his sword faster, a necessity when you needed to mix blocking and stabbing. Gil's gauntlets, sword, armor, and shield could be improved several times over the course of the game, but only if you found every step of the upgrade chain, so at some point you had to grab a mediocre sword just to be able to get the next one. An additional challenge awaited you when it came to the ultimate gear, necessary to beat the final boss. It was cursed. It made Gil a worse fighter. But the treasures on each floor before a cursed piece of gear had an item that neutralized the curse and made the equipment worthwhile. Other items included amulets protecting against wisps and dragon breath, potions increasing your energy, books illuminating dark floors, and candles that let you see and fight ghosts. The ghosts looked like floating, cloaked figures with glowing eyes under their hood and a lantern in one hand. Gil could also get a single-use potion for putting down a dragon with one hit. You wanted all of this stuff. But there were exceptions. Some chests had potions that reduced Gil's energy. And at some point the game gave you a potion of unlocking that lets you open one locked treasure chest, and it was followed by two locked chests. On the first playthrough you'd open the first one. It had nothing. Then you'd see the other chest, maybe, so you'd save the potion for it. And it had nothing as well. You might not realize this at first, though, because some other chests changed their contents depending on what you had and hadn't found, so maybe there was a way to make something appear in the two empty chests? But no, the secret was that there was no secret. With all the hidden objectives and traps and item relations and maze layouts, you'd need to take notes. Don't try to remember. The Tower of Druaga is not a short coin-op game. Even today, playthrough videos clock upwards of 40 minutes, maybe reaching an hour, and that's by people who know what they're doing, armed with a guide, and using save states. Back in 84-85, if Druaga landed in your local arcade, solving it probably would be a weeks-long group project. If you could afford it. 
We already know that arcades had certain expectations of the rate at which cabinets earned coin, and nobody would have let Masanobu Endo design a game that could be cleared on a single credit. The literal price of the length of the Tower of Druaga was that it was hard. Unbelievably bullshit hard. You had lives, but you had to beat floors without dying, and Gilgamesh died in one hit, plus whenever his invisible energy meter ran out, but you couldn't be too careful either because of the time limit. So you'd lose all the lives and see the game over screen. If you had more coin, this is where you needed to do a secret input you'd written down. Press player 1 start and attack to enter the continue menu, which not only let you keep playing from the level you died on, but descend to any of the previously cleared floors. No, you couldn't farm for more points like that, the game prevented it. But the ability to go back did have a dreadful purpose. Near the top floor of the Tower of Druaga, including the very top floor, there were a few situations when Gilgamesh could get zapped by powerful magic and send some floors down. While it might sound like a minor annoyance, it's actually a fate worse than death, because the best equipment in the tower came with a catch that if you ever got zapped, you lost it. Yes, you could open the chests again, but remember, you only got the best gear at the end of long upgrade sequences, and to restart those, you needed to die and continue pretty much from the base of the tower. You sure you've brought enough change? So, the Tower of Draga featured secret treasure chests revealed by meeting secret conditions, letting you collect items with secret properties and relations to other items, and while you were doing this, you also battled enemies, which involved a secret energy mechanic the game secretly tracked, and if you died and lost all your lives, you could continue after using a secret button combination. Oh, and don't get me started on the final floor, which came after the final boss. To beat the game, you needed to figure out a sequence of actions in a ritual to reverse Druaga's imprisonment of Priestess Kai, and nearly every mistake there resulted in Gilgamesh being zapped down. I believe you can understand now why, when the Tower of Druaga got released in the West, the game was actively disliked, to put it mildly. It was bullshit incarnate, if you try to take it on alone. But Japan was ready. The players there knew that keeping notes and tracking down secrets was a team effort. I mean, they'd invented it. And so, strangely but not inexplicably, when the Tower of Druaga appeared in the Japanese arcades in June 84, the game became an instant classic. It was so popular that apparently only one title was above it in the charts that season. Karate Champ. And that's saying something, I think. Because Karate Champ was a simple game where you wiggled joysticks for a few minutes and watched two dudes kick one another, and the Tower of Druaga was a puzzle action marathon you couldn't even hope to comprehend without copying some handwritten pointers. They still loved it. Microcomputer and console ports and sequels followed. This of course means that there was no shortage of Japanese developers borrowing elements of Druaga for their own projects. The game's impact is enormous. The Tower of Druaga might be the game that gets the annoying teleporting wizard enemy archetype going in video games. It inspired people to use treasure chests appearing only when the player fulfills a certain condition. It promoted the style of sword fighting when you just pull out the sword and run forward. It further boosted the secrets fad, and even, like the prisoner, encouraged looking for solutions outside the game world. The player wants start button, really? 
and since you had to find most of the secrets to get the ending, Draga can also be considered the ancestor of later games, where the proper ending is locked beyond some extra collectibles or ridiculous actions you wouldn't do in normal gameplay. And if you've ever felt frustrated that some game was impossible to beat properly without looking up a guide to find out what bizarre requirements you've had to meet, well, here's what Masanobu Endo had to say in his 2003 interview translated as Shmoplations. I'm glad that Tower of Draga was loved by fans, but the fact that the game made players more paranoid about looking for secrets and that it put a new emphasis on clearing a game are two consequences I've had time to reflect on. Was it really setting a good example for other games? On the other hand, thanks to Draga, the community and culture of notebook sharing, where arcade players shared their secrets and tips, was born, so that was a good thing. End quote. While Endor did not invent having to treat a game like a research project to clear it, adventure likes got there first, Endor did put this idea into a mass-market video game with an audience of millions. It seemed fun initially, but clearly the guy has had regrets since then. Maybe one day we'll learn why, but my bet is on the industry's trend to run anything even remotely popular into the ground. The Tower of Druaga was such a big hit in the summer of 1984 that the first game inspired by it came out already the same year, and its creator dared to go where Masanobu Endo hadn't. He made an action role-playing game. But this is where we need to step back and have a brief primer on action RPGs in Japan. In the early 80s, one Yoshio Kiya, a car mechanic, got interested in computers and happened to frequent Computerland Tachikawa, a store located not far from a base with deployed US Air Force personnel. So in addition to Japanese micros, the shop carried Apple products and lots of American software in English. Software such as Ultima, Wizardry, Choplifter, oh, it had the latest stuff. However, the owner of the shop saw the future of his business not in sales, but in publishing original product, so he got a new publishing brand, Nihon Falcom. We'll give Nihon Falcom way more attention when we talk about the rise of role-playing games in Japan. For now, let's just say Yoshio Kia brought his games to the shop, they were accepted, and handmade copies started being offered to other customers. In 83, Kia made Panorama Island, which some claim to be the first Japanese action role-playing game. I wouldn't support the claim because the action part was limited to combat resolution, played out in the corner of the screen, where you needed to approach enemies and press the attack button to check if you were lucky enough to beat them. For the rest of the game, Kia has said he was ripping off Ultima, but I suspect he may be misremembering because Panorama Island felt more like Wilderness Campaign or Odyssey the Complete Adventure. You moved a character on the map of a fantasy island, encountered natives you could fight or talk to, and enemy lions you fought. You could fall into pits and get weaker and hungrier. Some encounters had light item puzzle elements, say you needed a rope to be able to gather strawberries from a tree. It's got those synergistic software vibes. But Panorama Islands also had Ultima-ish first-person view dungeons and a day and night cycle so the whole map would switch to nighttime when, well, you couldn't even move at night and nothing happened to you at night, so the feature was just a waste of time. At this point in his career, Yoshio Kia did no planning whatsoever and just programmed in basic whatever came into his mind. Following the same design strategy, Kia made another first action role-playing game, released by Nihon Falcom in September-October 84, Dragon Slayer. 
I'd describe this one as I can't believe it's not Telengard. I mean, there are differences, the dungeon map scrolls for one, but Dragon Slayer used the same pseudo-real-time system where the game advanced a turn whenever you did something or whenever a short timer ran out without you picking an action. The map was not procedural, though. It was handmade, with various objects placed to spell out words. You played as some hero trying to escape from this maze, slaying dragons and other beasts on the way out, but it's hard to say where you were escaping to, since your house was right there in the dungeon. You had to bring special items to it, one at a time, like in Robinette's Adventure, to power up your character. That was necessary because the combat in Dragon Slayer was still a numbers game. You traded blows with monsters, hoping that the hero's strength and health were enough to make the enemy die first. So there wasn't much action in this action RPG, but there were puzzles. If you carried a magical ring, you could push wall tiles and your house, if you wanted to put it in a more convenient place. Magic spells could be used for opening new paths too, but they mostly served utility purposes, like saving the game. Still, the main focus of the game was grinding and searching for power-up items and laboriously dragging them to your house one by one. It wasn't too bad for the day, so Dragon Slayer sold well and got ports to various systems, including a revised MSX version, one of the first titles published by Square. Most conversions of Dragon Slayer were enhanced in one way or another, because the original was very rough, more coherent than Panorama Island, but still a mess, and Yoshio Kia realized that. So for his later projects, he would start planning game design in advance. We'll leave him to plan, because in December 1984, Japan got yet another first action role-playing game, designed at TNE Soft by Tokihiro Naito, the guy who had taught himself how to code using a shopping mall demo computer. The name of the game was Hydlide, and it's another title that got a good reputation in Japan and was trashed in America. It may have something to do with Hydlide being released in the US in 1989, and it's not a kind of game that aged well. We know that TNE Soft had already had experience cloning Tutankham, so maze games where you looked for the key to the locked exit was nothing new to the company, nor to the industry. Going beyond the basics, Tokihiro Naito was drawing inspiration from one of the first role-playing games made in Japan, the Black Onyx, and the Tower of Druaga. Although, as he says in the untold history of Japanese game developers, he's only ever got to floor 15. But he had seen enough, and after three months of work, his hide was finished. The plot premise of the new game was given on its opening screen. In other dimensional space, three jewels kept the kingdom in peace. But the jewels were stolen, and Varelis woke from sleep. Varelis made Anne into fairies. End quote. From this we learn that basing your security system on precious gems is like making barbed wire out of copper, just asking for it to get nicked. As for Anne, she was a princess of this land, whom Varelis, quite the magician, split into three parts and turned them into fairies. But our hero can rebuild her. Our hero is introduced next. A man called Jim, who could not endure to see people tortured, decided to exterminate the devil. He tried to attack the monsters to re-establish the kingdom. End quote. Yes, at last, you could play as a man called Jim. We don't know much else about him, except that he's apparently a royalist. A man called Jim started the game standing in a field next to a forest. Unlike the Tower of Druaga, 
Hydelite did not lock you up in a stuffy tower of mazes. It still had mazes, but those were specific locations like a dungeon or a vampire's castle, and you'd enter them from the overworld. A large, multi-screen, bright map of the kingdom populated by monsters. A man called Jim dealt with monsters the Draga way by ramming them, ideally from behind to deal more and take less damage. Another legacy of the tower were the two modes of fighting, offensive and defensive, for killing enemies faster and dying slower respectively. And there were no hidden mechanics. Your health and strength were on the screen at all times, as was the health of the enemy you were ramming. If you saw that things were not going in your favor, you could usually run away to heal up and come back. But a good choice of tactics alone would not carry you far. You still had to improve the character. Some of this could be done by finding new items and stuffing them into the row of icons at the bottom of the screen, like in Draga or Raiders of the Lost Ark. A man called Jim could find a better sword and a shield, a special key to open all treasure chests in the world, a one-of-a-kind single-use potion that restored him to life if he died, a lamp to see in dark dungeons, and a cross, enabling a man called Jim to kill the vampire who guarded the lamp. Still, the equipment alone would not be enough to win. A man called Jim had to go out there and kill monsters to fill his experience bar, level up, and get stronger. And this may be one of the flaws of Hydlide. The combat system itself was not particularly engaging. And yet there were many moments where instead of getting somewhere new, the player was forced to grind, killing the same enemies over and over again. Because anything too strong would kill a man called Jim, and anything too weak would not reward him with experience. And no, you could not skip ahead much by evading enemies, or abusing the fact that Hydlide let you save at any moment. A man called Jim also gradually lost health simply by being in a dungeon, or a forest, or a desert, or worst of all, swimming. It's like a simplified version of using up your supplies of food in proper role-playing games. So you needed that extra health you got from leveling up. At the same time, recovering lost health was easy too. All a man called Jim had to do to feel better was to touch grass. Yes, standing in a green meadow healed you. But, of course, there were no meadows in deserts, bodies of water, or dungeons. So, bearing all that in mind, or discovering it along the way, a man called Jim had to defeat Varilis. There were several things you had to find in the world to prepare. First, the three jewels for the security system to seal away the final boss, and as a bonus, they increased your health regeneration rate, so that hostile terrain was less of a problem. Except, to open the chests with the jewels, you needed a key, and the key was in a secret cave you wouldn't be able to see until you found some magic pot, or the magic pot, so get going. Like in Robinette's adventure, the whole world is a puzzle. Second, you needed the three fairies to put Anne back together again, eventually. The first fairy was hidden in an area with several huge trees, and you needed to attack them one by one until you found the randomly placed fairy. The catch was that attacking the wrong tree spawned one of the best words in the English language. Wasps. They attacked you, and they hurt. The second fairy was also in a random big tree in a different area, and here wrong trees just hurt you back when attacked. The third fairy was hidden behind the Tower of Draga Great Bullshit Secret. In a specific screen, you had to let wizards hit you five times with a fireball, and then kill a wizard. If you didn't follow this exactly, by, say, killing a weak slime wandering about on the same screen, you had to restart the fireball routine. 
Collecting the three fairies teleported a man called Jem to an island in a lake beyond the desert to the gates of a castle guarded by a dragon. Then you killed the dragon, whose death drained all the water and exposed the riverbed littered with treasure chests. After searching those, you'd enter the castle, where Varilis would appear surrounded by numerous minions. Also, he was invincible. Yeah, in a final twist, you had to run past the boss to the next screen, kick down a conspicuous tombstone, and that let you hurt the boss, win, put Anne together, and get a happy ending. So, Tokihiro Naito's Hydelight did deliver an epic adventure. You freely explored a huge kingdom, you uncovered secrets, you searched deadly dungeons for gear, you fought bosses, wasps too. Okay, the combat was too abstracted for an action game, but it's not like sword fighting mechanics were well developed in 84 as we know. The role-playing game elements could have been better, with less grinding and more interesting choices, but Japan was only taking its first steps in RPGs, and the Western ones at the time weren't all winners either. For late 1984, Hydelight was a decent game, quite nice looking too, and in 85 its original NEC PC versions and other microports sold well. In 86, the Famicom port changed some puzzles and added magic spells for you to cast, to shoot fireballs, or make all enemies turn around. And apparently the total sales of the original Hydelight editions reached 2 million copies, so the game was well known and influential. One of the people who tweeted how shocked he was with Hydelight's open world back in the day is a superstar developer Hideo Kojima. But perhaps Hydelight could be improved on. Maybe there was a more elegant way to design a game about a hero with a sword and a shield, exploring a kingdom to find better equipment and some magic stones necessary to beat and seal away a demon lord and save a princess. Maybe. But we're not finding out about it today, because even though action-adventure games had had a fairly slow start, they exploded in 1984, and most of this episode has been dedicated to just this one year. I think it's a bit early for general observations and conclusions. Developers are still only laying the groundwork for what's to come next. But it seems clear that people are arriving at the idea of action-adventure coming from different starting points. We've had attempts to simplify the mainframe adventure, to streamline role-playing games, to make platformers and maze games more involved, less linear. And they're all meeting each other in the middle. Also, it's been refreshing to see some games that don't hate the player for dying. In Superman, you can't die. In Adventure, being eaten by a dragon is a minor inconvenience, as is dying in Pitfall 2. In Avalon, you're an astral projection and don't care. In Spy vs. Spy and Below the Root, mistakes simply cost you time, a more flexible resource than lives. And Hydelight lets you save your game at any moment, so retry as much as you like. Arcade releases still demanded sacrifices of quarters, and their home ports followed suit, but the games created with home systems in mind could be more relaxed. Developers have no profit in killing off your character. You have nothing to prove, so enjoy the adventure. And we'll continue this adventure next time, because after the foundational year of 1984, many of the companies and people we've met today continued building up on that base until Nintendo crashed the scene and took all the glory. This has been Computer Game Evolution. Thank you for listening, thanks to LegoFan94 for covering the hosting, and don't forget to donate to good causes.